The Year One Podcast is all about the founders of tomorrow. For the first time ever, you can follow along their story as they build whatever company that they're trying to build. Listen to the tips and tricks that they find are working currently in the market, the trends up to the second. For the first time ever, hear the founder's story from the beginning. Unfantasized, realistic, just for you to learn from. My name is Marcus Bird. I'm the host of the Year One Podcast. Follow along and go start your year one. All right, guys. Thank you for joining the Year One Podcast with Marcus Bird. I'm here with Margaret and Tombi, who is a results-driven financial uh, professional bridging analytical and leadership skills to help grow businesses. So from interning at the State Department to working at uh, PNG and Accenture, uh, Margaret then transitioned to a fellow at Parity VC and the now famous Rare Breed Ventures led by Mac the VC on Twitter. On top of all of that excellence, she is now in the process of completing her MBA at the NYU Stern School of Business. Margaret, thank you for coming on the Year One podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So basically, um, we, we, we get to hear the story of Margaret before she blows up in the VC world. And, you know, obviously private jet and helicopter for no reason. Um, so we get to hear exactly how she started before she's far beyond all of us and way too busy to talk to us. Um, so, Margaret, exactly how, first off, where are you from and how did you uh, get started or find out that you wanted to do finance? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm ethnically from Uganda. That's where my parents are from. But I was raised in Madison, Wisconsin. And so how I found out that I wanted to be in finance was essentially a story that involves my background in Uganda. But before I go there, I just want to let you know that my parents are academics. Okay, my father is a biochemist. I have siblings who are doctors, engineers, etc. And so I thought that I was also going to follow those footsteps. I started out as, as a nutritional sciences major. But there was one trip that I took to Uganda, whereby I saw a lot of poverty and the economic disparity that goes on in specific communities. And so I became passionate about finding a way to invest in these communities that are underserved. And that was what spurred my interest in finance. I wanted to use finance to invest in these communities. And so I changed my major to finance, investments in banking and international business. I had to apply to the University of Wisconsin-Madison Business School to start pursuing that major. And that's where my journey in finance began. After going through the University of Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> you went to interning at the State Department and then into Procter and Gamble. Was that kind of the path that you saw yourself taking into finance or did you kind of just fall into that path and you went with it? So when I switched my major to finance, um, you know, I didn't have mentors. I didn't really have a path. And so I saw all of the students going to the career fair and I did the same. I put on my suit, my jacket, took myself to the career fair and the woman that became intrigued by my background was a woman at the State Department who encouraged me to apply. And so it was from her mentorship and just wanting to give me an opportunity and a chance. That's how I ended up at the State Department. But then I thought um, I, I had an aspiration to maybe become a diplomat after that experience. 
But I said to myself, you know, I'm a finance major. I want to become an investor, reminding myself of the overall objective of why I started this major. And I felt like I needed strong finance skills to get to my goal of becoming an investor. And that's why during that second career fair, I looked for opportunities that would help me build my quant skills. And that's how I landed at uh, Procter & Gamble. So how long did you, so first off, did you like the corporate world? Is that kind of your thing or were you kind of in a cubicle and you're like, yeah, this is uh, really not it? Actually, I really enjoy the corporate world, to be honest with you. Um, I think there's a lot to learn in the Mm -hmm. corporate world. It's safe, right? It's a safe space to learn how to be a good finance professional Mm -hmm. um, and learn many different gambits and aspects of what finance entails. Finance is such a broad word, but when I was at Procter and Gamble, I learned about how to do cost analysis, right? I learned how to do pricing analysis. I learned how to do forecasting. Um, I learned so many different skills and learned how to break down different roles within the finance world. I would have never gotten that if I didn't go into that space. So when it comes to finance versus VC, do you find yourself doing those same formulas that you just spoke about? Are those the same things that you're looking at in the VC world or is it a little bit different? No, it's actually, it's quite different. You know, corporate is big business, right? So I feel like There's a lot more numbers, depending on the stage of investing that you're in. Right now, I'm in pre-seed, seed, maximum series A investing. So it's not as number crunching heavy as it would be in the growth stage, where I might see a little bit more of what I'm used to in the corporate space. But um, along the way, as I was working in corporate, I did start up a couple of companies, you know, because I always had that entrepreneurial flair. I was never okay with just doing my job. I had to do more to grow. So I always found spaces to explore my creative side, which was like me ideating, right? And coming up with gaps in the market in different markets and how to fill them and come up with ideas, whatever finding other co-founders or just supporting founders. I've always been in the space since I got out of college. And so while I never was deeply involved in the valuation of these startups that I was doing because they were never being exposed to venture capitalists, right? I never made it to like that stage of it. Um, Right now in my executive MBA, I'm spending a lot of time in entrepreneurial finance type courses and entrepreneur, like foundations of entrepreneurship, valuation, and other aspects of finance that I will see more often in venture capital. So when it comes to kind of making the pivot from finance over to VC, I see that you were involved with Gen Z VCs. So was that kind of your bridge between finance and VC? It re- my first fellowship in VC started out with parity. Okay. That was in November of last year. What I did essentially was there were other people in my co- like in my MBA program mm-hmm. that I connected with that were trying to break into VC and use them as resources to find other resources to help me break in as well. And so I just stumbled across Gen Z VC. Actually, I think I found the Gen Z VC platform on Twitter as I was searching resources to help me break into VC and Google. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
the ultimate in searching is Google. So with with that parity, um, what, what, what kind of surprised you or what did you not really realize when it came to BC? Like, since that was your first experience, what, what was that like? I think that when you're outside of the venture capital space, you don't realize how much work goes into process specific aspects of the job. Like if you're right, having to write an investment memo, right. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at like 10 companies, each company needs a memo. So there's a lot of like paperwork that goes into it that I didn't expect. Um, and so a lot of people just think it's like all fun and games, but you know, there is definitely a lot of work and I didn't expect that when I first stepped into it. So would you say that that is one of the low parts of VC? Like that's less, is less fun. It's a lot of paperwork. Um, but it's one of those things that needs to be done. So what portion of that is the actual VC job? Is that like taking up 30% of your time or is it? Um, I would say like research and writing memos, et cetera, probably takes up, yeah, like 40% of my time. Um, I would say another 40% is meeting with founders, right? And then the remaining 20% might be, you know, pitching those founders to Mac, for example, if I write a memo and I find after me going through the due diligence process on that company, it's worth bringing to the investment committee or that other 20% might be spent helping Mac draft materials for communications out to the public or, you know, whatever else he might need done or doing portfolio support with the companies within the portfolio is also a part of the role. But I wouldn't say it's nothing that I don't like. Like I know we talked earlier and I talked about my resilience because I understand what needs to be done. It's not like I hate it. I understand that's a part of the job. It's a lot of founders goals to get funding, right? But really, I believe founders are in the dark a lot of the time when it comes to funding not only the different types of funding that are out there, but exactly what a VC is looking at uh, versus what the founder may be telling them, right? Because each pitch deck is going to be a little bit different. If you Google pitch deck or look at Slidebean or, or some other websites, each pitch deck is going to be a little bit different. Um, and that may be due to industry or just due to what information was available at that time. So when you said a portion of your time is speaking to founders and then pitching Mac. So you're saying that when a founder is pitching someone in a VC firm, that founder is really pitching them in order to have them pitch to the principals. And that's something that I don't think is out there very much. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think founders are aware that you're kind of giving somebody the fuel that they need in order to make a good case on your behalf. Exactly. Because I'm not the one who carries the bag, right? Like as a fellow. Mm. So as I, Mac is the one who carries the bag. So if I'm talking to a founder and they reach out to me, then I need to pitch that founder to Mac and be like, let's, you should have a conversation with this founder. Mm. This is a great idea. Because at the end of the day, it's his decision to make the investment. So what is, what what would you say? Because I'm sure that there's been founders that gave you everything that you needed, right? That set you up nice. It was easy to kind of share their vision and their passion with Mac. What are one or two things that founders need to know or need to do or need to have ready 
when they come to pitch a VC? Um, so, I mean, when a VC is assessing your venture, there's a couple of things that they look at, right? Hmm. Um, and all of these things should be in your pitch deck. So for example, first and foremost, who's on your team? right? Like, and why are you the right founder for this initiative? Like, what's your backstory? What led you to he- led you to this point? Are you really passionate about this space? Have you been working in this industry for 10 plus years? So we mm. trust that you know it very well. Are your founders also experienced in the space? There needs to be a level of confidence that we have in the founding team to be able to execute the venture mm. based on their past experience. And also their level of grit and resilience because starting a company is not easy. Then we start to look at like, what is the product and how is it improving a buyer's experience? Like, is there a huge gap in the market that this product is filling? And is it gonna improve the buyer experience versus what is in the market today? And then how big is the market, right? Mm, Yeah. How much can they obtain? We like to see what their business model is, obviously. Like, how are you driving revenue? And often if you have like one revenue stream, that's a red flag because if that revenue stream, you know, you wanna have adjacencies, you want multiple revenue streams. So if you're like, let's say, I have a company in mind whereby they help artists, like music artists, create a tour schedule plus they work with venues plus they have another revenue stream so that makes me feel like if one fell off we'd still have the opportunity to pursue the others right and then we also look at like how they're communicating their their value proposition to their target market the target market needs to be very clearly defined it can't be like moms across the U.S. it needs to be mothers in a 30 mile radius of this region because it's a pain point for this specific person so we know you can target that person and you have a value proposition for that target obviously we got to look at competition right Right. are there a bunch of other companies doing the same thing and if there are what makes you different what makes you worth investing in and if there's a lot of crowding in the space then maybe you need to pivot because it might be too difficult to win the market or also looking at like, if you're in a space where there's a bunch of bigger players like Procter & Gamble or KPMG, if your product comes out, is it going to be easy for those firms to cannibalize? And then the last thing that I think is really important that Mac really focuses on is customer acquisition. How are you getting your customers? So let's say you have a strategic partnership with a PayPal or a Stripe. That leads us to believe that you're going to be able to scale the business quickly. Or are you going venue by venue door knocking on each individual client? to get your product in the door. That's not the most efficient strategy that leads us to believe you're going to be able to scale quickly. So strategic partnerships are very important as well. So would you say that you are more specializing, I guess is one word, is um, you're specializing in B2B companies or B2C companies, which um, what do you think your kind of wheelhouse is? Um, so working with Mac, I'm a generalist. Right. We invest across all industries except for life sciences. And so I think that that is similar for myself because I like to support across the gambit. But what I would say is that I have a property preservation business. So I am interested in the prop tech space as, you know, more of like a hobby I'm interested in because I have a business in that space, Mm. but definitely looking across the board. Let's go. 
So when it comes to Africa, um, do you see yourself kind of investing in African companies or are you more of sticking around the U.S. right now? What do you think, uh, what are you doing now? And what do you think you're going to be, you're wanting to do in the future? Yeah, me personally, I would definitely like to become an angel and invest in Africa, my continent. Yeah. Um, you sure it's not a country? Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say it. Just, um but yeah, uh, just, you know, that being my home, right. Africa being my home and where my family is from, it definitely has a special place for me. Mm-hmm. And I told you the fact that it was the reason why, you know, issues in that, that continent is the reason why I started the journey to invest in the first place. Right. I'd like to definitely at some point give back financially and achieve the goal that I've been having since the beginning. So who do you, who would you say are three people who have helped you along your journey? Um, there's a lot of people, mm-hmm. but so the people that have helped me along my journey, I would say are, there's a woman at Procter and Gamble, the one who gave me my first opportunity, the one who recruited me into the firm. She definitely helped me immensely in starting my, you know, career in finance. Mm-hmm. And she just saw something in me. Yeah. Like her and I have a great relationship to this day. She's basically like a, a mother figure to me. Right. Um, she's very deep in my heart. I very much so appreciate and love her and will definitely stay close um, forever. I would say another person that has been pivotal for me. There's a number of different women who were at Accenture that were pivotal for me. When I first started at Accenture, I would say that I was still kind of in my shell. They helped me kind of break through and gave me opportunities to explore my creative side while I was in the firm and, you know, not just do my nine to five, but build initiatives, you know, be an entrepreneur and build initiatives that helped the organization. And then I would say Mac would be someone I have to shout out because I got to, you know. He would change your access <laughs> the next day if you didn't shout him out, yeah. Um, but yeah, like again, it was, you know, there's so many, that's why giving back is so important to me because mm-hmm. you just need to give people opportunities. Sometimes that person is not going to like fit a specific box. And I feel like sometimes we're comfortable giving opportunities to those who are similar to us. But one of the things that I like, I enjoy doing is giving opportunities to people that are very different from me because I get to learn so much from them. So with, with that, with a longer journey, having so many people taking a chance on you or seeing something in you, right. Cause of your resilience. How do, is there a way or how do we kind of capture that process? And so that way the next person also gets an opportunities who may not quote unquote, you know, fit the mold. Is there a way to identify those people and give them that, that shot? Yeah. I think the one thing that made it easier for me is just while I might've been shy, I was always pleasant. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I came off as like easy to connect with, even though maybe I wasn't the first one to talk in the room. I wasn't the center of attention. Right. I think just the pleasantries are really important to elude 
whenever you're connecting with somebody. And so I would say like to anybody who's out there and who wants an opportunity, definitely act like you want the opportunity. And I think that, you know, I've had previous feedback because of the fact that I'm sometimes in my shell that I don't bring out enough energy. So for the, where I've made that mistake in the past, I encourage people to bring energy and excitement to whatever opportunities that you want. Also do the best that you can to do your research and do your homework. I feel like sometimes that's where I, I wouldn't say that I lack, but sometimes I don't feel like I'm articulating myself well enough. I have insecurities around like my articulation and how I sound. And so I feel like maybe those are moments when I didn't get an opportunity because I didn't sound like I knew all the answers or I didn't do enough background, you know, research on something. So you know, do what you can to come with as much knowledge as you can to a discussion with someone that you have an opportunity to meet. You know, I didn't, with the opportunities with Mac, with the opportunities with the women at P&G, with some of the opportunities I got at Accenture, I didn't have all the background research with Mac. I didn't know much about him, but it was just the connection. So I'm saying that might not always, that didn't always, I didn't always need to come with that, but I advise that people do because it'll just help your chances. So being prepared and then just having that connection with people. Yeah, be pleasant. Nice. Smile. (laughs) Last question before we do the hot seat. What would you, if, if, if you had to start all over again and you know now everything that you've done um, and you know that you want to end up in VC, what would have been the path that you would have taken? Okay, so for all my undergrads out there, if you want to get into VC, please do investment banking. That investment banking breaks doors to so many places whether you want to go into like a corporate finance role, like a PNG or anything like that, VC, private equity, like investment banking is one of the most marketable finance roles out there. Um, so just get in there early, be an analyst, move up a level or two, then make your transition if you want to, or continue to be in that space. There's so many awesome jobs in investment banking, in capital markets, helping with the MA process. It, it's just a great learning ground. So please, if you want to be in VC, do investment banking. Investment banking is where it's at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it can open a lot of doors. And I didn't know that. All right. So generally the hot seat is questions that need answers. These are questions that VCs are going to ask founders. But since you are a VC, that's not really going to work. So we're going to switch it around a little bit here. And I want your favorite let's go five your favorite five questions that you're going to ask founders time for the year one hot seat questions that need answers you want answers i want the truth you can't handle the truth okay question number one Number one, here we go. After I hear the entire pitch, if they hadn't said it already, I'll ask them what their customer acquisition strategy is, okay? Number two, I'll likely ask them if they tell me their whole story and they're like coming up to a roadblock, you know, in some way. Obviously, most founders don't say the bad things going on. But if I notice a specific roadblock, I will definitely ask them if they're like doing a seed stage and they haven't had any uh, funding yet. Why not approach fam- friends and family? Mm-hmm. Um, are you looking at the right investors? You know, things like that. Third question is traction. 
right? I'm sure they might've already addressed this in the deck, but how many customers do you have? What's your projected growth path over the next couple of years? Fourth question, definitely would ask the founders how they met if it's a founding team with multiple founders um, and ask them to give me their story, their passion story about why they're doing this. And also I'd want to know, like, have they left their nine to fives or do they have any other things that they're doing? Is this their side thing or is this their full-time situation? And then number five, I would ask them, what differentiates them from competition? I love how number four was, is this their full-time situation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not, not full-time job, not full-time <laughs> business. This is a situation. Because <laughs> things change. They might have other situations as well, but is this the one that is from nine to five and you got other situations? <laughs> All right. Well, Margaret, thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to try your name again, just because it's been a while and I haven't said it in a while. All right. Margaret Ntabi. Almost. Oh, man. Almost. I should have I should have just used the first one that I did at the beginning of the show. All right. Messed myself up now. Ntambi. Ntambi. Yeah, there you go. Margaret Ntambi, thank you for coming on the Year One podcast. All of her links to everything um, are going to be in the show notes. So you want to get in contact with her. She's on Twitter, LinkedIn. uh, So just hit her up there. And I'm sure that she would love to talk with any and all founders and definitely have your pitch deck ready. And you've heard a cheat code now, right? You already know what kind of questions she's going to ask. So definitely be ready with that stuff. Uh, Margaret, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to give out a huge thanks for listening to the year one podcast with Marcus Bird. If you are like me and love startups and meeting amazing founders, please check out the year one podcast.com for more information, the links to the different founders and episodes that we've had on in the past. And if you know of any founders who are trying to gain exposure and bring their product to the world, have them fill out the quick sign up form on the year one podcast.com website. It's like three or four questions. It's a general overview. We want to get just a little bit of information about what they are building. Well, that's all for now. Look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode. Until then, go out and start your year one.